Welcome to Forest North, a podcast from the Superior National Forest. I'm your host, Brett Ross. Join me as we hear from some of the fine folks who live, work, and recreate on our national forest lands here in northern Minnesota. This time on Forest North, Partnership Coordinator Emily Munter, along with retired Forest Supervisor Jim Sanders and Northwoods Volunteer Connection Director Joe Swanson, discuss the value of volunteerism on the Superior National Forest. Steve Robertson returns to share an update on his outreach efforts, the early sap run for maple trees, and some skunk behavior that's right on time. Forest North is created by the Ely Tourism Bureau in partnership with the USDA Forest Service Superior National Forest. Find out more about the Superior National Forest at fs.usda.gov superior. Please remember to subscribe, share, and leave a review on your preferred listening platform and email your comments, questions, or suggestions to tourism at ely.org. I'm Brett Ross. Welcome to Forest North. And I'm joined on this episode by three guests today. Emily Munter is the Partnership Coordinator with the Superior National Forest. Jim Sanders is a retired Forest Service employee. And Joe Swanson is the Executive Director of Northwoods Volunteer Connection. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Starting with Emily, again, thanks so much for being here. Emily, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to be with Superior National Forest, and what the role of a partnership coordinator is. Yeah, I think, thanks, Brett. Um, I'll go back in time and talk about a young girl on the plains of western Nebraska and <laughs> and tell you that that young girl really fell in love with with wildlife and fisheries biology. And so I, I wanted to grow up and, you know, uh, arm wrestle with grizzly bears and <laughs> do telemetry with bighorn sheep. And, and I was able to get some of those positions, but through those positions, I found out that I really love working with people. And that's the last thing I expected myself to discover through, through the course of my career. Um, and that, that love of people has, kind of brought me to to the superior where I serve as the partnership coordinator. And I don't have a very good elevator speech for what a partnership coordinator does. I mean, I usually, when people ask me that, I usually say, well, tell me what a partnership coordinator doesn't do. <laughs> and that's a little bit easier to answer. Um, but really I'm all about, I'm all about relationships and helping the superior have strong relationships with with partners with our volunteers like we're here to talk about today um with communities uh with all all manner of of uh entities that that support the forest and and figuring out ways the forest can support them so in addition to volunteers can you give some examples of what some of the partnerships are that you cultivate oh the superior does we have so many wonderful partners. Like, for example, we have a a partnership with the Nature Conservancy. You know, last year, the Nature Conservancy helped us plant tens of thousands of trees oh, on the wow. forest. Um, we have partnerships with, you know, trail maintenance groups. You know, for example, like uh, one of our partners is called the Boundary Waters Advisory Committee. And last year, they... they uh, that group and their volunteers 
contributed over a thousand hours worth of work into helping maintain a couple different trails on the forest. So it's it's a wonderfully diverse position that I have, and and we have a, a really diverse and strong slate of partners. Um, the yeah. Superior is very fortunate in that way. Well, thanks for that background. We'll jump now to Jim Sanders. Jim, you are retired from the Forest Service. Talk a little bit yes. about uh, your career with the Forest Service and and what you're doing now in your retirement. Well, uh, my career, I grew up, born and raised in central Montana. And uh, I guess my connection to the Forest Service began when I was a little youngster when I heard my granddad talk about his mountains mm-hmm. as he would point out the window or whatever. He worked for the Forest Service in 1913 wow. and my grandmother with him. She graduated from the University of Montana and that night they got married and moved to Red Lodge, Montana and were up in the mountains up there for a number of years. So I, I guess that's where I first was introduced to something called the Forest Service. Uh, but then I joined the Forest Service in 1973 in Montana and have been in Montana and northern Idaho and eastern Washington and uh, back to northern Idaho and then at West Yellowstone, Montana and then to Washington, D.C., and back then on the Superior, started on the Superior in 1996 and retired in 2011. Wow. So I had about 38 years of journeying with the Forest Service in multiple locations, amazing opportunities all the way around. But I think, of, like I say, the volunteers are, are really critical to any organization, and an organization with the charge of uh, managing over 3 million acres, the volunteers are critical. And that's whether it's a large forest like the Superior or small forest, it really doesn't matter. The connection to the volunteers is in what they bring in terms of value add and key program areas that often um, have difficulty with funding. The volunteers magnify that by two or three folds. So it's, uh, it's, it's just, and it's always been so much fun to work with the volunteers. But, my volunteering started probably when um, when we lived in West Yellowstone, Montana. I volunteered for the, uh, I and many others, I was one of many on the search and rescue volunteering for the, for the sheriff in search and rescue. And often that entailed going out at night looking for snowmobilers that had not returned in the wintertime. There was a large snowmobile contingent. And so that was kind of where some of my volunteering began when we got into that community. Um, and then, uh, you know, in, in here on the Superior, my volunteering, I guess, began after I retired in 2011. Uh, my wife, Pat, and I uh, have volunteered since then, or she was volunteering before that, working with the North American Butterfly Association and going out on about uh, five different areas uh, on transects for counting the butterfly species and numbers. And three of those locations are on the Superior and some of a couple of them have been going for close to 20 plus years so you're starting to get some pretty interesting data that way just you know in counting butterflies that sounds like what now mm-hmm. and then um, then I joined or was asked to join the National Museum of Forest Service History which is centered out of Missoula Montana so I volunteer with them from here um, is there you know pulling together collections historic data uh, like how many the district rangers that used to be on the Superior National Forest from when the forest started in 1909 or whatever, and uh, forward to different things, or different collections that way. And then now they're going through a fundraising or uh, effort to uh, 
develop and build a national conservation legacy center all in Missoula, Montana. And it's all volunteers. There are staff there, but so many of almost all of us are Forest Service retirees volunteering with it. And then I volunteer locally also with Hawk Ridge Bird Observatory. I'm on the board of directors for the Hawk Ridge Bird Observatory. And we've been going for over 50 years uh, documenting the fall raptor migration. And about eight years ago, we added the spring eagle migration north. So it's just, you know, and it's it's just a key. It's just a lot of fun. That's the most important thing. We uh, you have a lot of fun doing it and uh, keeps someone like me and my wife, both of us connected to why we spent 38 years journeying with the Forest Service. So that's kind of a little bit more than you wanted, but a little bit of my background and what I worked at, work on now. Oh, that's really great. Uh, outstanding career. You mentioned 38 years with the Forest Service. And then once you retired and had all that time on your hands, you wanted to jump right back in and, and do more work from a volunteer standpoint. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, thanks. And Joe Swanson is the executive director of Northwoods Volunteer Connection. Joe, could you tell us a little bit about what Northwoods Volunteer Connection does? Yeah, absolutely. So NVC is a nonprofit organization, and we work to recruit and train volunteers for projects on and around the Superior National Forest. So we partner with the Forest Service to identify high-priority projects, and then we also work with various other organizations to support their projects as well. And these projects, there's really a wide variety of things that we do. We might be working on habitat restoration, boardwalk construction, a lot of like general trail clearing and maintenance so really there's there's something for everyone and a way for everyone to get involved that's so great because i know here in ely i'm a part of our hidden valley recreation area which is a system of nordic ski and and mountain bike trails mm-hmm. and we really could not function if it wasn't for the volunteers the people that yeah. have a passion for the area have a passion for the trails and will come out uh say there's a windstorm that comes through and there's a bunch of trees coming down we have a list of volunteers that we can call and they'll show up there with their saws or or just ready to do some heavy lifting and really so many organizations like that that really couldn't function without volunteers brett you speak to my heart (laughs) uh by saying that because i i've kind of have come to to really appreciate that the superior national forest couldn't be the superior national forest without our volunteers. And I have some, some kind of fun statistics from, from last year that I, I wanted to share with you. Um, the superior is the first in the Eastern region of the United States. So there's 20 States in the Eastern region and we're the leaders in the number of volunteers and the number of volunteer hours um, that are contributed to the forest. So like last year in 2023, we had over 53,000 hours of volunteer time on projects all across the forest. That's extraordinary. It's just, yeah, it's, it's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Over. And that's, those hours were contributed from over a thousand different people, a thousand different individuals, and we can place a monetary value on their time mm-hmm. of $1.69 million. Wow. And so again, like the superior could not be the superior without mm-hmm. our volunteers. And so I really, I really want to thank 
everyone that volunteers on the forest because we we truly uh, we truly cherish you and are grateful for you and and how you help us achieve our mission. That's really really incredible. And as you said, the ability to supplement a, a budget. Um, we all know, especially in, uh, working for a government entity, budgets are pretty strict. And when you're working within a limited budget, the ability to tap into those volunteer efforts can get you so much done. And when you talk about, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. putting a value of over a million dollars on volunteer efforts, that it's absolutely mind boggling. Truly is. Yeah. Yep. That's just one year, but then you look at the resource accomplishments that's when it really is uh, is mind-boggling and exciting at the same time. It's what those folks are willing to do, just like you're talking about up at the ski areas out of Ely, Brett. I mean, it takes that that energy, compa- compassion, and commitment of folks to get there. And, oh, by the way, they're also connecting with other programs or have a better understanding of what's going on on their national forest. And it's just, it just it pays dividends and... Uh, any organization is based on relationships, and uh, the volunteers are really a key part of all of that. I mean, if you look at the uh, volunteer fire departments mm-hmm. that across, you know, they survive because of volunteers, but and how that connects, um, say, with the Forest Service is you get any kind of large-scale fire, and the structures are involved, that partnership between the wildland firefighters and the volunteer fire department right. that deals with the structure. I mean, it's it's a critical thing. Life and safety is part of it. Or the fun part, the uh, Superior Hiking Trail, that was started with volunteers. Volunteers started, you know, out of Tofty. Some of those were Forest Service folks, DNR people, and, and where it, it has expanded to now is mind-boggling. One of the premier trails, hiking trails in the country. So it, and it's volunteers is where those things start. It's kind of the icing on top of it all that really, on the cake that really goes, so... That's what's fun with it all. And it seems like the vast majority of the volunteers that will step up to do these sorts of things are people that already have a vested interest. They're they're users of the trails. They're users of the National Forest. They recreate on there. They live there. So it helps to create a buy-in. It helps to create a, a sense of ownership. Yep. And it, it that creates sustainability. Yep. One thing that I was really impressed with, so I, I kind of got started in this world by being a volunteer on, on the Superior Hiking Trail, uh, as, as Jim brought up. And what, what was so amazing to me was how much I learned by showing up to volunteer events and learning about all the work that it takes to maintain access to these awesome recreational opportunities. I had no clue uh, when I had first started hiking just how much work it takes. And uh, I'll never hike another trail without having a, a deeper sense of appreciation and just awe um, by, by the massive group effort that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ownership and connection is phenomenal, and that becomes a network to the for the Forest Service um, in communicating what we're, what the agency is about, what the National Forest is about, or what one of the range, what's going on on Ely. The volunteers out of the Ely area or any one of the districts can really help communicate what is happening, why it's happening, and where are we going with it all. And that that's exciting, and that's the community that is needed for uh, for managing public lands. 
Well, and it creates such a depth of knowledge about how things like trails are built and maintained. It creates an interest. You know, when you get young people involved, you get people who maybe bring their children along on volunteer opportunities, that creates an interest. I know, Jim, as you mentioned, and, and Emily, as you mentioned as well, that your roots uh, with your involvement with the Forest Service started in your childhood. And I can imagine that a lot of people sort of discover that avenue through volunteerism. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. I mean, that's the easy access in without having to go through applications and the bureaucracy to get to that side of it. But uh, yeah, it, you get to find out, is that really what you want to do or, or to enhance that passion you have? A good opportunity to sort of dip a toe in the Forest Service life before deciding if you want to make a commitment to that. So many people, so many resources, so many people that have that that depth of knowledge and experience that even if someone doesn't choose that, say, as a career path, it can be a lifestyle path. It can be something that perhaps as they're on the trails in their own backyard, they can put some of those practices to use. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Emily, if you could, can you talk about some of the specific ways that volunteers are utilized on the Superior National Forest? Uh, Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question because one of the things that I really want to express during our time together today is that there's an opportunity for everyone. Um, We have opportunities like what, what Jim expressed. Some of his work is helping our biology program, doing surveys for butterfly species, Or like what Joe mentioned, we have opportunities to get involved with maintaining our trails. We have opportunities to help with with campgrounds. Uh, We have opportunities to help with education and interpretation. And uh, folks even can volunteer to help with supporting our visitors that are coming into our our offices and our physical locations. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I'm going to give you an example. We have opportunities that uh, you could even do from your house. You know, right now we're looking for volunteers that maybe Mm -hmm. would be interested in helping us router some signs to put in various locations on the forest. And that's something that somebody could help us with from their garage. So like there's truly, uh, I feel like we have something for everyone. And if you, if you have that interest, like, yeah, please, please, please reach out. Um, and, uh, at the end of the time today, uh, between Joe and I, we'll make sure to, to share information on how people can get in touch with us if they have an interest. Yeah, please do. And I'll remind you this after our segment here to uh, share any links that you might have that we can put in the show notes for this episode and give people the opportunity to easily click into uh, finding out more information. Sounds good. Joe, can you talk a little bit more about NVC, the Northwoods Volunteer Connection, and how you go about connecting with volunteers and, and finding the places that they can best be put to work? Yeah, for sure. So in the past, NVC has worked with over 900 volunteers on such a wide variety of projects. And so uh, during the pandemic, things had to shift a little bit and we weren't as active. This is our first like real year back in action and we're really excited about it. We are planning a a full-scale projects. We're we're really going to have a lot to offer this up coming season. We're still working out what the season is going to look like, but we're hoping to have all of our projects announced within the next month or so, so people can start planning ahead for for the warmer warmer months. 
Uh, and so we'll be doing uh, trail maintenance projects. We've got a small construction, trail construction project, and probably doing some large cleanup events uh, all on the forest. And uh, information about how to sign up for those or learn more about that will be on the Northwoods Volunteer Connection website. And if people are interested in learning more, they can sign up for our newsletter, they can go to our website, social media, learn more. And they can, if they've got questions, they can reach out and we can try to find a project that will work, that will work for uh, whatever you're interested in, basically. We'll, we'll find a way to, to connect people. That's really great. I just, I can't say enough, the ability for people who have an interest in getting involved and who, who obviously have a passion for the forest or just like being outside and working with their hands, the ability to easily make those connections and find those opportunities. It's a great resource for people that have the time and have the interest. Yeah, it creates such a, a great sense of community. I've I've watched so many lifelong friendships form on trails. There's something about being outside working towards a, a common goal that just forges friendships really easily. People are happy to be out there. Uh, there's a great sense of purpose. It's it's just a it's a great way to interact with the world. And I can imagine people that maybe it hadn't occurred to them that, that there was this opportunity to volunteer on the forest. And, and hopefully through this podcast, there are people out there going, holy moly, I can, I can go out and, and work on trails or I can just, you know, give back to this area and this community that's really important in their life. Yeah. yeah, and I, I can't stress enough how much a person gets out of volunteering. Like they, when you volunteer, you you learn so much and it really enhances your enjoyment of of the outdoors when when you can see things and really appreciate what it takes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really changed how, how I interact when I'm out hiking just for fun. I, I see things differently mm-hmm. and and yeah, it just makes the whole experience more enjoyable. Yeah, I always like going on new trails and noticing things like, wow, look what they've done for erosion control. That's really impressive. So, Jim, go ahead, Jim. No, go ahead, Brett. Go for it. I wanted to just ask you about your long career with the Forest Service. Can you talk about some of the ways that your specific job and the, the role of the Forest Service in general has changed over the decades that you've been involved? Well, I guess I could probably... The, the comparison I may, I could make is what I heard my grandfather talking about my mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, is he pointed up to those mountains in central Montana with that ownership feeling and that compassion. Um, and, and for the ranchers that he dealt with out on the national forest. But what I see is a tra- transition is from first person to third. Those are our mountains. Mm-hmm. Those are our forests. And, um, and it's expanded. And, and I've seen that not only, like I say, from what I witnessed with my grandfather to what I witnessed, you know, moving forward is where there's so many opportunities, like Joe's talking about, to get involved, to get engaged in what's happening um, on our national forests. And that's what I think is really critical. It's our public lands. There's no no trespassing signs on it. It is there for all of us to enjoy in so many different ways, respectfully, of course. But the volunteering helps then that ownership to turn that that hour to turn into this is where I went here. And pretty soon you start getting multi-generational experiences happening then too. I mean, you can go out on, on 
a, a national thing that happens not just on the superior but is the christmas bird surveys mm. it's happening nationwide christmas day or that time period over christmas um and there's a big count that goes on up at isabella mm -hmm. or you can do a count if you're interested in birds right from your bird feeder that plugs in but your geographic location next to or on or surrounded by the Superior National Forest, it all feeds what we're trying to deal with conservation of species. It all feeds into that or the work we're doing very specifically down uh, in in uh, five times a year uh, in, in from middle of June to the middle of July, we're traveling on these transects, uh, identifying the numbers uh, and species of butterflies. And you start walking, well, insects, whatever. Well, some of those are on our, our monarch butterflies that that species um, in September, they fly uh, nonstop down to Mexico and they spend the winter in, in the trees down there. Then they be going go through their generational succession of every two or three weeks as they work their way back north. Or you got species of concern like the northern blue is one that, that are on three of the sites on the Superior we're looking for. It's an inch and a quarter, about that size, small butterfly, but it's a species of concern. And part of it is there's the species, but what about the habitat? And what does that habitat tell you then? What about uh, what else is going on? And in some cases, we've come out not just with the northern blue, but we had a special site up out of uh, Proof Creek up near Sawbill, area that uh, I think last year or the year before we had over 2,000 of these concerned butterflies. Wow. After a while, I don't want to see any more, but that was just <laughs> one, that was just one species of 40 or, 50, or 20 or 30 we would see on that particular count. We're looking for everything and, and that may be monarchs or whatever, but you start to understand the intricacies of what's going on at that lower scale what's going on at the mid-scale of things happening, as well as what's going on in the national, uh, across the landscape. So uh, my, my background is a, trained as a forester in forest ecology, uh, but then be watching the birds and understanding that interaction and understanding the interaction between the butterflies and the other birds or whatever, because butterflies are providing some food for birds, uh, but then they, but the adaptability that they have and the interconnected of everything. But then that's part of what you get to see and learn while you're out there, whether it's doing the bird counts, whether it's doing the butterfly counts or doing the trail, what's going on on that trail? And what do you see um, in this particular area or um, what species of trees are doing well here, what are not? And then as we look out now, we don't have an ounce of snow on the ground. It kind of leads, where are we going with the climate change? And what will that give us in terms of the trail maintenance or the species we're dealing with and that interconnected, but they all come together. But I've seen, so the long, long way of answering is I've seen the transition from my mountain, if you want to call it that, or my national forest to our national forest and that we are all engaged in that. And together we will keep it as our national forest and in the best condition we can given the circumstances surrounding it. That is such a great perspective. And, you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I live in northeastern Minnesota on the Superior National Forest is there is such a vast expanse of land, three million acres of forest mm -hmm. here and the opportunity to explore that whenever I get the chance. I, I don't think I could trade that for anything. Oh, 
And then you added to that the people who have an interest in birds or people who have an interest in butterflies, that they can take that interest and be a part of crowdsourced data that can yep. can feed into a bigger picture of migrations and habitat and, and effects of climate change. It is such a great way for people to really experience that interconnected nature of the yep. forest. Yeah, and you can go to, uh, if you're going up to the end of the Gunflint Trail, and go to Chickwalk Museum, which is a, which has, gives you the social dimension and history of what was going on pre-Boundary Waters days and when through the legislation that turned, we ended up becoming, uh, the owner turned that over to the Forest Service at a certain point in time. And now through volunteers, we have a glorious museum up there uh, that houses all Give, tells the story of the, the Northwoods and the resort and tourism industry, the Boundary Waters, as well as there's a, a boathouse there, a uh, timber frame built boathouse that historic boats. But you can then get the connection of the social dimension as well as, you know, what's going on with the flora and fauna. But then, okay, we are all part of it. And so Chickwalk Lodge Museum, which is on the National Forest, it's a partnership between the forest and the Gunflint Trail Historical Society. And they are, they are volunteers, tons of volunteers out of there working. And uh, so that's, you know, and so the Superior is a unique spot. I'm biased because I had the privilege to, to be on the forest for 15 years, kind of over top looking at all that we had and working hard at what we all had going on. And now I can take my passion or natural resources and being out and do other things on the forest and off the forest. That history piece is so fascinating as well. You know, a lot of people yep. know sort of the, the the highlights, the Wilderness Act or the, you know, the founding of the Superior National Forest in 1909. Uh, I spoke with Lee Johnson, forest archaeologist with Superior National Forest in the last episode, and Lee talked about the amount of logging that was done in what's now the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Also the fact that there was an Ojibwe civilization for countless years prior to that, prior to any Europeans coming to this area. So the idea that that history extends way beyond what most people tend to think is a really important piece as well. Yep. Yeah, one weekend my wife and I spent time at Fall Lake Campground. This was a number of years ago at uh, an archaeological dig we were doing there. And we both had pottery in our hands that was last held in someone's hands 1,500 to 2,000 years ago. That's amazing. And it's just, you know, they, that's, you have to kind of, it just stops you for a little bit, understand, yep, we're here, but we're here uh, and sharing this what someone else did. Most places we all go to that are beautiful views, uh, we aren't the first ones that glance out and look out over that landscape. But the volunteers are all so much part of it all and so critical to what is going on. And, um, not only specifically, you can use trails or the museum or going out on wildlife surveys, whatever, that adds value in exponential measure for what the forest is doing, but it really provides a connection in the community that is so critical for any public land management. I love that you mentioned the uh, the Fall Lake archaeological site because I, I brought that up with Lee on the last episode. He was working on that site and I was able to bring my children out to that site and get an idea of what a working archaeological site looks like. Very much so, yep. So Emily, could you talk about what some of the projects that are volunteer related or that you're working on with some of the partners through the Forest Service in the coming months and the coming year? Yeah, I think I'll I'll answer that by saying uh, in general, like 
supporting our our trails is probably the the biggest need that we have from our volunteer base um we you know we just we have so many trails all across the forest that wouldn't be of the quality that they are without our volunteers and the fact that weather events and natural events and vegetation grows and you know trails always need maintenance and so that continues to be an annual need and probably one of our bigger needs you know Jim touched on biological surveys that he volunteers with and that certainly is an opportunity for people to help with biological surveys or even uh invasive species control projects in different areas of the forest or, you know, helping with establishment of pollinator habitat or establishing, you know, young seedling trees. Um, if, if that's of interest, you know, those those projects are, are always ongoing and available. I mentioned earlier, just like providing services to our, our visitors, you know, education and interpretation services to our visitors, those are always important and and needed, you know, in particular, like education and interpretation are incredibly valuable in in helping the people that are recreating on the forest, you know, understand how to recreate responsibly and in a conscientious way of uh, the natural resources and the the history um, and respecting that and helping preserve that. And so volunteers are important in helping us, helping us achieve that mission as well. So again, back to my earlier statement, think that there's an opportunity for for anyone that has has an interest you know if be it large or small or be it physical work or or maybe something let more more passive you know like providing education or or even like I mentioned working out of your home we can connect with you and find a spot for you I can't say it enough just how important it is the work that you do and coordinating with people that that have an interest in getting involved and to help the experience for people for visitors to the national forest be as as rich and fulfilling and to help them know best practices on the forest as well. Yeah, it's very important and it grows more important all the time as we oh. see more and more folks out recreating on on the forest and on our public lands. Just helping people understand how to recreate responsibly continues to to grow in importance. Yeah. Volunteering is such a great way to get to know the resource. And people care about what they know and they protect what they care about. And so volunteering is such a great way to just get started on a personal stewardship journey uh, to get to know the land, to start to care for it. And yeah, just be part of, part of the solution. I really like that phrase, personal stewardship, because I feel like it goes so far beyond someone calling up and saying, I want to volunteer to do trail work, or I I want to get involved in this, to something as simple as if you're hiking on a trail and you see some trash on the trail, pick it up and take it with you. Something as simple as that, that personal stewardship goes such a long way. Yeah. And and then the volunteers get to know the staff and the staff year-round staff get to know the volunteers and that's an awesome communication line you know you know both joe and brett you know who to call if something is puzzling you're not sure you read something in the paper or you saw something out on the trail or something like what is happening here what is this and you know right away who to call and they may not even be aware of something going on but that you become the eyes and ears and the extension of what the employees are capable of doing and and you have fun at it if it's, you know, that positive side of things. But 
it, it's just a positive experience all the way around. And those people take their passion um, and put it to use. So Emily, if you could give us some information, uh, ways that people can contact you or contact the Forest Service and the, and the best way for people to, uh, to get involved with Superior National Forest. Yeah, I can definitely do that, Brett. Um, the Superior National Forest website, like if you just hop onto our main webpage and click on the Working With Us tab, you'll find a volunteer section and it gives a number of contacts for volunteering on different areas of the forest. You know, some of the opportunities, again, are assisting our wilderness rangers, assisting recreation staff, doing restoration, uh, campground hosts, wildlife assistants, naturalists, and more. In particular, once you navigate to that page, you'll notice that we're uh, doing an outreach for volunteers for wilderness ranger positions for the upcoming summer season. Um, there's some contacts uh, from our, our Gunflint Tofty offices and our um, Ely office on, you know, if you have an interest in traveling by canoe and visiting remote locations to help maintain campsites or help maintain portages, you can look those folks up. And, you know, a neat benefit is not only are you out doing fun stuff in the wilderness, but there is a, a stipend and housing potentially offered too, if, if that's a need or if that would help you be able to, to volunteer in that way. Excellent. So visit the Superior National Forest website, uh, volunteer.gov, um, or the Northwoods Volunteer Connection website as well, are all great ways to, mm -hmm. to sneak in and connect with opportunities on the forest. Given my age, I can say you could even walk in the office or give somebody a phone call oh, and say, absolutely. hey, I'm interested. You know, so I mean, the there's our electronic world, but there's the phones and the front door, and you can really make a connection and find. I mean, that's what's fun about it, and that's what's so needed, too. I Wonderful. Agree. And Joe, could you share information about contacting Northwoods Volunteer Connection? Absolutely. So our website is Northwoods Volunteer Connection. Org. Again, that schedule of events for this season should be released within the next month or so. We have a newsletter that comes out about once a month. And so if you're interested, you can sign up for that newsletter and we'll post all of our volunteer opportunities on there. We're also on various social media sites. So look us up, Northwoods Volunteer Connection. And yeah, we hope to see you all out there. Very good. Well, any final thoughts, Jim, any final thoughts from you? No, I just commend folks if you, if you have an interest or want to start an interest or something to explore, volunteering is an awesome way to get started with it and uh, and just to better understand what's going on. And so just to, encourage, just to encourage folks to do is to get out. It's a reason to be outside and we all need that. Absolutely. Joe, any other uh, final thoughts from you? We're just really grateful to be working with the Forest Service and to be able to provide great volunteer opportunities. Wonderful. And finally, Emily. Oh, we're forever grateful for our volunteers and the Superior National Forest could not be what we are without our volunteers. So thank you. Outstanding. Thank you so much to all of you. Emily Munter, Partnership Coordinator with Superior National Forest. Joe Swanson, Executive Director of Northwoods Volunteer Connection. And Jim Sanders, retired U.S. Forest Service employee and lifelong volunteer. Thanks so much to all three of you for joining us on Forest North. Well, 
Welcome back to Forest North. I am joined by Steve Robertson, Interpretation and Education Specialist with the Superior National Forest. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, Brett. Good to be here. Good. Well, thanks for being here. We appreciate having you. And uh, we are in our fourth episode now, our third episode. You did not join us. And of course, there's been a clamoring. They're like, bring the interpretation guy back. People have oh, really. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, people have really enjoyed your content. So um, it's great to have you here. Uh, the last episode, we talked about uh, nesting of things like owls and ravens. And uh, you mentioned offline that there are some animals that are in their mating season right now, like skunks, for example. Yeah, I don't know if that quite goes along with, um, you know, we're recording this near Valentine's Day, and I don't know if skunks <laughs> really qualify as a, as a Valentine animal, but, but it is the time that they, they tend to get romantic around now. Well, I grew, up on Pepe, with, I grew up on Pepe Le Pew, so it's not far off. Yes, that's true. I, I remember those cartoons as well. And I'm not sure if that quite was an accurate representation of what happens, but... <laughs> It it was a good Valentine's version of it, I suppose. Right, maybe not the French accent. Yes, and the the perfume is a bit more <laughs> aromatic when it's a skunk involved in the process. <laughs> this um, is true. So talk, talk talk about skunks. Oh, they're actually you know there's something about skunks and also porcupines that that I really kind of like because they're like animals that have attitude mm -hmm. they know that nobody actually is going to mess with them too much <laughs> and we were camping one time and actually when this was i was a kid and we got joined by about five skunks while we were at the campfire oh, i mean boy. we were just sitting around the campfire and this family of skunks decided to join us for some reason wow and we couldn't really chase them away and they just sort of stayed there and watched what was going on and hung out for a while and then left and to me it was one of those amazing animal encounters and just their attitude of yeah we don't care about you you're not going to get us uh we right. may be small but we're mighty yeah what are you going to do come after us i don't think so yep so so they're they're kind of neat i know that People are not too appreciative of them if they're underneath their deck or somewhere around their house or they have a dog which likes to go after Oof. such critters. Uh, but if you can tolerate them in your general area, you know, not necessarily underneath your deck, but they, they make they make good neighbors. There's nothing particularly wrong with a skunk. They, they do their part in keeping down mouse and other populations so now are they uh, a burrowing animal i think so that they so i i was in the woods a few weeks ago it was a really unseasonably warm day and uh just walking down a forest road and i noticed where something had been digging and you know there was kind of a rise in the earth and uh something had clearly been burrowing out a space and uh, I went up just, you know, didn't didn't want to get too close to it. I didn't want to disturb if there was something in it. But I was pretty sure I detected the odor of a skunk. So <laughs> that's why I ask if they're if they're a burrowing animal. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's what that was or not. But there are definitely things uh, digging into the earth this time of year. Yeah, uh, skunks maybe. And the other thing I would think of with that might be foxes. Sure, um, sure. They definitely have an aroma to them. <laughs> uh, a fox 
den, they usually dig into the side of some little rise and oftentimes leave kind of a front porch of dirt in mm-hmm. front of their hole. Yep. So they can be a, kind of an easier burrow to follow or to find because they, they've got that kind of front porch area. And oftentimes you'll see bones and things on that front porch area from things that they've brought that they've eaten. Sure. And, you know, we've definitely had a a bizarre winter. We had a pretty substantial thaw through, uh, you know, late January and into early February. Can you talk about how that is affecting the forest right now? It it does seem to have changed the timing on a lot of things. And there's so many different directions we can go in talking about that. I know that there is sap running here. I've talked to some people who do maple sugaring as a hobby and they I know that down in the Twin Cities area, they have major amounts of sap running. It looks like it usually does in, you know, March, right. and late March. Yeah, that's really strange. What effect, what effect that's going to have on our trees, um, I don't know. It'll end up being kind of a longer growing season, possibly, but that's not always a better thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Trees are really really specific as to where they live the, the the ones that live here are evolved to deal with our length of winter and and our kind of system and having it change this much really makes a difference to them i would imagine so any any time you throw such a dramatic change in the overall climate uh into any kind of living creature it's 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 obviously going to have some sort of effect but like you said it, it sort of remains to be seen if that's going to be a, a negative effect or a positive yeah. And it, I'm reminded of a study that I saw quite a long time ago where they tried to plant apple trees in Hawaii mm. and thought, gee, we can have apples all year. And it turned out that the apple trees produced a ton and never got a chance to rest and died really fast. Wow. They just never went through the winter that they really needed. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of our species were the same way, that they really are dependent on having the cold weather. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's very interesting. The other thing that I know that there have been reports on are ticks that are out and active. Oh, boy. Uh, ticks don't necessarily, in a sense, they don't go away. They just really slow down to the point that they're not around during the winter. But once it starts to warm up, their metabolism starts to run again. They start moving around. They crawl out to the ends of things and grab passing deer or humans, whatever they can find. And we've been picking up deer ticks as well as wood ticks. Not a whole lot, but uh, it's definitely extended that season for for people out in the woods. Wow. We definitely take for granted that we don't generally see ticks in February. Right. The other tick that's around here that humans don't have to worry about, but moose do, is the winter tick. And winter ticks, uh, a heavy infestation on an animal could be in the tens of thousands of ticks on a moose. Wow. And that's definitely hard on, on moose. I bet. And with milder winters and drier springs, um, those are two things that normally a cold winter and, and a wet spring helps to reduce the winter tick population. But with the weather we've been having, there's not going to be as big a control on that population, and the moose may suffer as a result. Seems like the last thing the moose need is another <laughs> another thing that's going to put, put stress right. on them. Right, and, and winter ticks have been something that's been 
flagged before as a possible reason why moose populations are struggling. Mm -hmm. Winter ticks have been up due to the being warmer weather in the winter. Hmm. So you are a full-time interpretation and education specialist. And of course, a lot of that involves outreach. And you had mentioned offline that you were in the Twin Cities working with some uh, school children. Yeah, we got a chance to travel down to the Twin Cities, a, a school down in, in Minneapolis. And it wasn't our, our normal selection of children from the North Shore. That was mm -hmm. That was really fun to deal with some kids that were down there and we were talking to them about the importance of the boundary waters and doing a program that we often do for fourth graders that involves actually putting out all kinds of things in the gym, fake trees, latrines even, mm -hmm. and a canoe that's on wheels and taking the kids for a trip in the boundary waters, but, but sticking to being in their gymnasium. Sure. And they had a great fun time doing that. I was actually pretty pleased and excited by the fact that when we asked them, you know, how many people have been to the Boundary Waters, there was a fair number of them that had been to the Boundary Waters. So it's, it's good to know that uh, people even down in the cities are really getting up here, too. It's interesting because having worked down there at one point in my career, too, you know, you're working in a park that is considered big because it has over 100 acres, you know, shifting to the national forest up here with 3 million acres. It just makes such a difference that we've got such an abundant resource. And it, it's a really special place. And sometimes I think people living up here, you get used to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes we all start to take it for granted. And it's, it's nice to be able to go down to the cities and talk to some of the kids down there and just realize again that, um, boy, we're, we're in a pretty pretty cool place to live up here. Yeah. And I, I, I got to say, I, I'm reminded of that every time I make a trip to the cities and uh, heading north, as soon as there's trees on both sides of the highway, I can feel my blood pressure start to go down. That's true. And uh, yeah, I will say, though, that uh, there's a lot of good restaurants down there. So this is true. This is true. You mentioned it's kind of a quiet time here on the forest. It <laughs> is. I guess the other season that has, we've gotten extended is what we traditionally end up calling the mud season. Uh, <laughs> and it's not a season I don't, I, I'm not sure anybody really looks forward to having an extended mud season. No. But it does mean that things like our recreation trails, a lot of them are not in great shape. Mm -hmm. um, they may not have enough snow for snowmobiling or for cross-country skiing, but then they also really aren't dry enough to be able to go hiking on easily. And we're kind of in this in-between mess where it's really easy to damage trails. People sometimes don't realize that, that getting out on a trail when the surface is really soft, um, you can end up widening something from being a, a narrow footpath to being a, a very large trail or digging up rocks and, and the substrate to the point that somebody will have to go out and do some trail work. Mm -hmm. So we just ask people to really pay attention. And uh, it, there may or may not be any actual regulation about doing something, but, you know, use common sense and, and look at what you're doing. And if it looks like whatever your activity you're engaged in is really doing a number on the trail surface or on the road, it's probably a good idea not to do that. 
Right. And, you know, while you mentioned there's not maybe not specifically a, a law or regulation against it, it does seem to fit in with those the, the leave no trace principles where if you were walking on a trail and and it's, you know, sinking down into six inches of mud, well, maybe it's best not to be on that trail. Yeah. And I think one of the leave no trace principles in in hiking, they talk about trying to you know, stay on the trail as tempting as it is sometimes to veer off of the wet spot and go off, you know, off the trail a little bit. That's what ends up making the trail get wider and wider and wider. And I'm sure you've gone hiking in places where you've suddenly noticed that the trail ends up being about 10 feet wide because everybody's trying to avoid the mud in the middle. Yep. You know, be prepared to deal with mud and if necessary, walk through it and right. don't just make the trail wider and wider as you go. Right. Yeah, that's definitely something you see in the summertime often where when a trail is wet and there's kind of that mud puddle in the middle of it. And, and you do see a lot of people start to go off to the edge as far as they can. And, and it does, it widens the trail and it can lead to erosion on the edges of the trail. And also it's going to, in the summertime, it's going to increase your proximity to things like poison ivy the more you <laughs> veer off the trail. Or, or go off there and collect some of those ticks that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Yeah. The other thing that uh, has been going on and is luckily something that's pretty much unaffected by temperature. In fact, if anything, it's a little bit better when it's warmer. It's uh, talking about dark sky kind of things. Oh, sure. And we've gotten a chance to partner with, with several groups um, on a boreal stargazing festival that's, that's been happening. And it's a chance for people to get outside and, and go out and look at the stars and, you know, again, Probably warm temperatures are better for this. If you're going to be standing outside gazing in the night sky, it's a whole lot nicer to do when it's 40 degrees than when it's uh, 20 below zero. This is true. But it, it's a, I, I've always liked astronomy and naked eye astronomy and getting a chance to know constellations just as giving you a good sense of place. And there's been some good activities that, that you may have seen recently taking place around the Ely area that had to do with the getting outside and looking at some dark skies. It is a, a really incredible thing to be able to go outside. And, you know, even here in Ely where I live, I'm fortunate enough to be able to just go out into my backyard and, and see the stars pretty well on a clear night where, you know, as we mentioned, people in the metro area, you don't generally get that. So to really appreciate the night sky and especially to be able to go further out on the forest where there is no light and to really see the stars, really see the constellation, you know, on a good night, you can really see the Milky Way. And it's just one of those really beautiful things about a dark sky sanctuary like we have in this area. Yeah, it, it is a really a great plus to being here. I will say that, that we went a ways out of town and uh, we're looking at stars out there. And one person said, oh, is that the Northern Lights? And we had to Gently remind them that no, actually, that was the lights from Ely. The lights from town projecting into the sky. (laughs) Yep. So, sort of an artificial northern light. Right. Right. I have been hearing that the northern lights. There's expected to be a big surge in the presence of the aurora borealis through much of 2024. Yeah, I think we're on a high part of a sunspot cycle. It's a a 10-year cycle that the sun goes through, and during the high parts of it, it tends to eject more of those solar storms that uh, have particles that travel our way and eventually interact with our 
ionosphere and end up creating northern lights. So it isn't expected that it's going to be a good year for that this year, which coupled with, oh, I think in April is coming up a solar eclipse. So astronomically, this is this is going to be a good year. That's fantastic. Well, uh, another good reason to get outside in uh, the nighttime hours. And luckily, we're still in that kind of shorter uh, daylight season. So uh, you don't have to wait too late in the evening to get outside and appreciate the uh, the nighttime sky. That's right. For now, our, our nights are still longer than our days. Well, even with the uh, the warmer temperatures, we still have that in place. But I don't think it stops people from dreaming about those longer days. Personally, I like winter activities, so when it's when it's February and March, I I generally hope for uh, some snow and to be able to get out and ski and snowshoe. And uh, we haven't had the greatest winter for that so far, but it's it's not over yet. It's not over yet, and March has traditionally been one of our heavier snowfall months. So hopefully, we will get some snow. Um, it would be nice. I would certainly enjoy having it. I, I would, yeah, I, I wouldn't even mind if it if it snowed foot or so or more, got a chance to actually go skiing again. I've only gone twice, which <laughs> seems just amazing for, for winter. Yeah, it is tough. And, uh, you know, just from a precipitation standpoint, it does... Uh you know, have an effect on what we see as we as we get into the spring and the snow is gone and, and the forest has yet to green up, we, uh, of course, have that immediate risk for uh, fire danger. Yeah, we do. Uh, last year with the heavy snow, we were ended up with a really nice saturated spring. Uh, the forest greened up, things were still fairly wet, and we had a, a really good minimal fire season last year. This year in the spring, you know, it's, it's hard to make bets uh, right now, but we're certainly looking at it uh, being a little bit drier or a lot drier than it was last year. And that will have an effect on, on possible fire danger. Well, here we are in February, so I, I, I think I can still, without getting too much flack from people, I can still say, think snow. Let's let's get some more snow. I, I think so. I, I mean, we're all up here because we like winter. I don't think that, you know, last winter, some people started to grumble a little bit towards the end that they had had enough snow. But uh, I'm not, I, I don't think I've run into many people this winter that have said that uh, that they wouldn't like more. Right. I have talked with a few people who uh, appreciate the, the little bit of extra time that they have that they're not spending shoveling snow. That is true. While people may appreciate winter, I don't think there's too many people who appreciate actually shoveling snow. Well, some people, maybe it's the only exercise they get, so a little bit of exercise doesn't hurt. That's true. Well, perhaps instead they can they can uh, be chasing skunks for a while and have a little bit of exercise. Get out on skunk patrol. Just don't catch one. That's right. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and get an update on uh, what what some of the critters are up to on the National Forest and uh, some great information about our dark sky areas and always a wealth of information on what's happening in the forest. All right. Well, thanks. Good to talk to you, Brett. Thanks so much. Steve Robertson, Interpretation and Education Specialist with the Superior National Forest. Thank you so much for listening to Forest North, and much gratitude to Steve Robertson, Joe Swanson, Jim Sanders, and Emily Munter 
for sharing both their expertise and their passion for what they do. Forest North is created by the Ely Tourism Bureau in partnership with the USDA Forest Service, Superior National Forest. Find out more about the Superior National Forest at fs.usda.gov superior. Follow the Ely Tourism Bureau on social media at visitelymn at ely.org and email your questions or comments to tourism at ely.org. Thanks again for listening. I'm Brett Ross. We'll talk next time on Forest North. <laughs>